You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I live a very limited life. I'm not uh, ashamed to admit that, really. Well, maybe I kind of am, but it seems like probably 90% of the stuff I talk about in a sermon falls in like these categories. I mean, except for the Bible, you know, I talk about the Bible. But generally, I'll talk about uh, how I'm a teacher, how I'm a husband, how I'm a dad, or how I'm a tool and like do dumb things. So I'm going to start this morning, we'll, we'll get into that stuff. I'll start this morning with the I'm a teacher thing. And a lot of you know that I teach a high school English. And so I kind of, I like bringing that up in sermons because most people went to school. And so we can kind of connect with that a little bit. And one of the things that we talk about as teachers uh, from a teacher perspective is this idea of student engagement. And that's how much a student is committed to or engaged to the learning. And an engaged student looks kind of like this. They're uh, learners who are attracted to the work. They persist in the work despite of challenges and in spite of them to push forward. And they delight in doing the work. So that's what an engaged student looks like. And there's kind of five levels of engagement uh, <clears throat> that you can classify a student as. The first level is rebellion, a a student in a rebellious engagement toward what's going on. And you can think about yourself in your own school career where you kind of fit in these things. The rebellious student is actively against what the teacher is trying to accomplish. Uh, So they're, I don't know, uh, sassing off to the teacher, arguing, trying to get everyone off topic. That's the rebellious engagement. And then we kind of go up from there into the retreatism. And this is a student who is... You know, just there, they're kind of, their body's there, but their mind isn't. They're not causing any problems, but they're not doing anything either. So this is the, the student who's asleep, the student who is daydreaming, the one who's, you know, gazing off. That's the retreatist. And then above that, we have the passive compliance. And this is where most students are, is the passive compliance. This is doing the very least you can to avoid any negative consequences. So I'll do the very least on assignments to get a good grade, do the very least behavior to not get in trouble, but it's that bare minimum thing where I'll just do what I can to avoid any negative sort of consequence. That's where most students are. Above that, as we get more engaged, we got this idea of ritual engagement. This is a student who works very hard for extrinsic rewards. They need that GPA. They need that high grade for scholarships. They want the the candy or the free time, whatever. Not the work itself, but they work very hard for those external rewards. And then the highest level of engagement is this authentic engagement. This is the fully engaged student, someone who sees meaning and value to the learning in and of itself. So it's not about the grade. It's not about a reward. It's The learning itself is what has value to the student. 
Now, as you can guess, most students aren't there. Most are at this passive compliance, doing the bare minimum to get by with things. Now, why I'm bringing this up, it's kind of a long setup to make the point here in the introduction. These levels of engagement apply to anywhere in our lives. With our marriage, there's these levels of engagement. With our work, there's these same levels of engagement. And with Jesus, there's these same levels of engagement. How devoted are we? How motivated are we as a Christian doing godly things? What is our level of engagement as far as Jesus goes? It's the same things. So at the bottom we have rebellion. The one who's actively against God. The one who doesn't care what's wrong, who doesn't care that it hurts people, who doesn't care that it's hurting themselves, who doesn't care that there's a God out there and there's consequences for that, but even for that exact reason goes against what God has to say. I mean, this was me before a Christian, really everyone before they were a Christian, actively going against God. That's the rebellious level of engagement. Above that, we got the retreatist. See, and this is where we start getting into sort of Christian territory here. And you need to ask yourself, where do I fit in this? The retreatist, as far as that level of engagement is, I go to church because my wife is making me go. I mean, I think a lot of guys fall into there. My wife's making me go. I'm going to go to church. It's the I'm just there kind of thing. I'm there, but I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to do anything. But my, you know, butt on the seat is some sort of blessing, I guess, to people being physically there. That's the retreatist level of engagement, doing a godly thing. Then we got the passively compliant Christian. The, the bare minimum to avoid any negative consequences. So this is a, a large number of people. I better go to church once in a while to avoid hell so God can bless me. I better read my Bible once in a while so God doesn't get mad at me. I better pray once in a while so God isn't mad at me. So it's, again, this bare minimum thing where we do the absolute least we can for God just to kind of avoid any negative consequences. And then we have the next level, ritual engagement. See, this is the God will bless me if mentality. I'm working hard for God, but only for extrinsic rewards. God will bless me if I go to church. God will bless me if I read the Bible. God will bless me if I pray. Working really hard, but only for external rewards. And then we have the best level of engagement, authentic engagement, which is what we need. And this is someone who delights in God and in His Word and in doing His work. That God is an end to Himself. Not about these external blessings or reward, but the relationship with God is the engagement. So now be honest. Think about yourself as a Christian or a non-Christian. What's your level of engagement? I mean, I'm a born-again Christian. I would love to say I am always authentically engaged. Everything I do is just for the joy of God Himself. I'd like to say that, but that's not true. There's plenty of times where I'm passively compliant, where I do the bare minimum just to not face any negative consequences. There are plenty of times when I'm ritually engaged, where I'm working really hard to check the boxes, to do the right things, so that I can get the the sort of reward. Now for me, that's where I stumble, that's where I fail. When I get into this check-the-box mentality, I read the Bible, check. I prayed, check. I went to church, check. I was nice to people, check. And that's the ritual engagement. I'm doing the things that I think I need to do so that I don't face any negative consequences. 
Now that way of thinking is not going to sustain itself. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This problem with the extrinsic motivator. And so now let's go on a deeper level here. We have these levels of engagement. But what determines that? What determines our level of engagement with with anything, whether it's a student, in a marriage, at work, or with Jesus? It's what is our motivator? What is our motivation? Is it extrinsic? An extrinsic motivation is never going to be authentically engaged. That's kind of the difference. If we're involved with God, if we say we worship God only to avoid bad things and get good things, we're never going to be authentically engaged. What we need is intrinsic motivation. That we delight in the thing itself. That we delight in God Himself regardless of the external things. Now the problem though, again, here's kind of the long setup to get to the point. With a lot of Christian teaching and a lot of the things we hear, what level of motivation does it focus on a lot of times? A lot of times we think only in terms of extrinsic motivators. God has a plan for your life. God will bless you if you do this. God will not harm you if you do this. And rather than seeking God himself for who he is, it's the extrinsic reward. And what we're going to see over and over this morning is that type of thinking does not sustain us to the end. There's a point where that external motivator is going to break down. So what we need is internal motivation in order to be authentically engaged in what God has for us. So in be this morning in the book of Job, because that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights. I'm just kind of continuing through here. So if you turn in the book of Job to Job chapter 20, we're going to be talking about this problem, this extrinsic versus intrinsic reward, being authentically engaged rather than passively compliant or ritually engaged. And now I'll set up the backstory of Job because we're like halfway through it. If you haven't been coming on Wednesdays to kind of fill in the backstory here, this is very important. If you read anything from Job out of context, you could get some really bad ideas about God because kind of half the point of Job is what not to say to people. And if you pull that out of context, you're going to get really wrong ideas about God and what to say to people. So the book of Job is really a story. It's a historical story about a man named Job who went through terrible things. I mean, here's how it starts. It starts in Job chapter 1 that Job was righteous, upright, and blameless. And he did everything he could to please God, to do the right thing. And he was very blessed. He had 10 kids. He had thousands of cattle. He had a house. He had lots of servants. So from all external points of view, he looked like a very blessed guy. He tried to do the right thing, and he got lots of stuff. Well, now here's the important thing about Job. It says in Job 1 that Satan goes to God to sort of check in, which says, you know, Satan is subservient to God. He goes to check in with God. And God brings up Job to Satan. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's nobody like him? There's nobody upright and blameless like him. See, God brings him up to Satan. Satan accuses Job, because that's what he does. He accuses people. He says, yeah, obviously God, obviously Job loves you. You've given him so much. He has kids, he has a household, he has servants. Take that stuff away. Job will curse you to your face. That's all he really cares about. Now what God says is, okay, Satan, do it. Do anything you want to do, just don't harm him. So Job's kids all die, all ten of them. His house is destroyed. His possessions are taken away. And he is reduced to pretty much nothing. 
And then it says, Job's response to that is the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not curse God with wrongdoing. So Job passes that test. The thing Satan said Job would not do, Job did. So Satan checks in with God again. God says the same thing. He brings Job up to Satan and says, Satan, did you see what Job did? He didn't curse me to my face. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Satan again accuses. says, obviously God, skin for skin, you hurt him, he will curse you to your face. God tells Satan, okay, take away his health. So Job is covered with boils, he's repulsive to people, and everyone has abandoned him, including his wife has said, just curse God and die. But Job's response again is, can we accept only good from God and not evil? And all this, Job did not curse God with wrong. Now that's the setup, and that's always very important to understand when we study Job. Job is not being punished for doing wrong. As a matter of fact, it's God who brings up Job to Satan. It's God who allows these things to happen to him. And so, after losing everything he has, Job has three friends who come to try to comfort him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they take turns trying to comfort him. But what we see is they spend about three verses of comfort, and then they start pointing out reasons why God must have done this. God must have done this to you because you sinned. Repent, turn back to God, and everything will be great again. And they start getting really mad at him. We're getting towards the end of the friend section. And they're getting really frustrated with Job because Job does not buy their garbage. I mean, that's pretty much it. They're telling Job, you've done something wrong, you need to get right with God, and then God is going to bless you no matter what. And Job says, no, that's not how it works. God is not punishing me. I know that I haven't done anything. And they start getting really angry with him. And rather than comforting him, they're in an argument and they're pointing out everything wrong with Job. And what we'll see this morning then in Job chapter 20 and 21, they've pretty much reduced following God to the series of extrinsic motivators. Do this so God doesn't do this to you. Do this so God will bless you. And they don't even talk about his problem anymore. It's just this theological debate. And so what we're going to see this morning in Job 20, 21, is that because extrinsic motivation is not enough to live a godly life, those motivators will not sustain us. We need to ask God for intrinsic motivation. So let's get started here in Job chapter 20. And it's one of his friends re- starts to respond to Job. It's his friend Zophar. And like I said, what Zophar does is reduces following God to a series of extrinsic motivators. So let's start. Job 20, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my anxious, my anxious thoughts make me answer, because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. So Zophar starts here with interrupting Job. Remember, Zophar came to help Job. That's why he came in the first place. Job 19 ended with Job saying, I know my Redeemer lives. You guys better be careful because there might be a judgment coming for you. And Zophar gets kind of offended by that, that they've been saying all along, Job, God is judging you. God has hurt you because you've done wrong. And as soon as Job turns that around on them, say, maybe God is going to judge you guys. He says, I need to interrupt you, Job. You know, you're a great guy and I'm going to let you finish, that kind of thing. I love making Kanye West uh, connections right there. Um, so he interrupts him. So then he says this, I'm not going to let you turn it around on me, Job. And he tells Job, follow God so these bad things don't happen to you. Verse 4, 
Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will its place behold him any more. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. And so he's saying, Job, follow God so these bad things don't happen to you. Here's what happens to wicked people. Their joy is but for a moment. They will perish forever like their own refuse. If you don't follow God, these things are going to happen to you. That's that extrinsic motivator. And this is really the essence of it. We need to worship God so bad things don't happen to us. Which might be true, we'll get into that, but that's not enough to sustain us, that extrinsic motivator. And we try to do this to convince people to follow Jesus. Hey, you better follow Jesus or you're going to hell. Yeah, that's true, but that's not enough of a motivator when we look at what happens in the world and in our lives to say, well, I better just keep trucking through it so bad stuff doesn't happen to me. That's not going to be enough to sustain us. Now notice also what Zophar has done. He's come here to help Job. He doesn't say anything about Job's problem. They're at the point, now they're just debating theology. Again, Job didn't take his garbage. Job didn't just say, okay, man, just pray for me. It'll be all right. Job says, no, guys, you're wrong. And now that he's not even trying to help anymore. He's just debating theology. You need to follow God or else these bad things will happen to you. Then he continues, another extrinsic motivator. He says, follow God or you won't have any joy. Verse 12. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food and his stomach turn sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He will not restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. From the proceeds of business, he will get no enjoyment, For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized the house which he did not build. So again, Zophar is telling him, here's some wicked people. Here's what happens to wicked people. This is what's happening to you, Job. Connect the dots. You must be pretty wicked. He's saying, if you don't follow God, you will not have any joy in your life. What he says is, it seems like the wicked person is enjoying things, but it's eventually going to catch up with him. He compares it to eating poison. That for a while you're going to keep having fun, but eventually it's going to catch up with you, and then God will take all your joy away. Now that's true in eternity, in judgment. Yes, it'll all catch up with us in judgment. But not necessarily in this life. See, being afraid of punishment is not enough of a motivator to give us a deep, meaningful relationship with God. So we can't reduce following God to just do it or He'll take away all your joy. That's not going to hold up. Because then when your joy is gone, then where does that leave you? And then, another extrinsic motivator. He says, follow God or He'll take your happiness away. Verse 20. Because He knows no quietness in His heart, He will not save anything He desires. Nothing is left for Him to eat 
Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. When he is about to fill his stomach, God will cast on him the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon. A bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion for, from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. So Job, you need to follow God or he's going to take all of your happiness away. And again, it's this subtle thing that his friends do. This is what happens to wicked people. Their stuff is going to get taken away. Job, your stuff got taken away. You must be a wicked person as well. Remember though, the backstory here, we always need to remember, God did not do this to Job because Job had done anything wrong. That was not God's motivator, and that's going to be hard to understand, but we'll see that through the book. God, or Job wasn't wicked according to God. And again, God is going to do this at judgment. But this, this idea of follow God or he'll take away your happiness is not a good enough motivator to be authentically engaged with God. So will these kinds of ideas be enough to sustain us? I mean, that's what, what I've been saying. That's the argument I'm trying to make here. Let's apply it to something else like marriage. Make it kind of a, a more applicable thing. So does this extrinsic motivator work in a marriage? If we say things like, love me or bad things will happen to you. Love me or you won't have joy. Love me or I will take your happiness away. That's not going to work in a marriage. You can't tell your spouse, love me or these bad things will happen to you. Then their only motive to not to love you is to avoid those negative consequences. It doesn't work with a marriage. It doesn't work with anything. It doesn't work with God. Again, I've been saying that's not enough of a motivator for us to go through this life and the stuff we experience and the hurt we feel just to say, you know, I better follow God or he's going to do bad things to me. That's not going to work. So when I do things for my wife just to avoid consequences, what does that mean about me? It means really I love myself more. You know, I better spend time with her so she isn't mad at me. What I'm trying to do is avoid negative things for myself. It's not because I love her, it's because I love myself and I don't want to get yelled at. It means I think she's mean. That if i got to check boxes or else she's going to be mad at me, what I'm saying about my wife is she must be pretty mean. It means also that I think she doesn't just love me. I better check some boxes or, you know, she's not going to, she's going to be mean to me. That's not love. That extrinsic motivator of I better follow God so he's not mad at me, that's not love. That's saying, really, I love myself more than God because I don't want bad things to happen to me. It's saying, I think God is mean that if I don't check some boxes, he's going to smite me in his wrath. It means that I think God doesn't actually love me and I have to do something to deserve it. So this will not sustain you. God is not against you. He is for you. God loved you while you were still a sinner. I mean, the whole Bible is kind of written to show you that none of that is true. That God does love you for who you are. That God is not mean, that He's a redeeming, saving God. 
So now if we go into Job's response here in chapter 21, he does what he always does, which makes his friends really mad. Job doesn't say, okay, Zophar, I guess you're right. I better figure out what's wrong with me and, you know, turn from that and then God's going to bless me. Job doesn't say that. He argues with him. He tells him, no, Zophar, that doesn't make any sense. And he's going to point out some of the problems with extrinsic motivators. So here's his argument, Job 21. Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. And after I have spoken, keep mocking. I mean, he's acknowledging the fact you guys aren't helping me in any way whatsoever. You're just here to argue with me at this point. So I'm going to say my little thing and then you can go on mocking me if you're not going to help. I mean, he's getting sarcastic with them. Again, he's not just accepting the garbage that they try to to feed him. And then he points out these flaws in this extrinsic motivator way of thinking. The first flaw is obvious. If following God meant that bad things didn't happen to us, or if not following God meant that bad things would happen, all we have to do is take two seconds and look at the world. We see plenty of wicked, godless people enjoying a lot of blessings. That's the first point Job brings up. Verse 4, As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified, and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. So the problem with this this line of thinking that Zophar said, look at people in the world, look at the stuff they're getting when they're outright rejecting God, they're outright rebellious against God. Look at what they get. They're, They're living a long time. They have a lot of power. Their family are not hurt. They're wealthy. They have fun. And then they just die. And he really sums it up in 14 and 15. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? If everything's been going my way, and I don't worship God, and it's all about external motivators, worship God so he'll bless you with this, worship God so he doesn't hurt you with that, what motivator do we have to follow him and worship him? And this was me as a non-Christian. As an atheist, I mean, people would say, you know, oh, you better worship God or you're, you're, he's going to do some bad things. You better worship God because he has a plan for you. He, he'll bless you. But I thought things were going pretty good just by myself. That motivation doesn't, again, sustain us. And then he says, wicked people don't get punished. And again, we see this when we look into the world. The wicked aren't getting punished. Verse 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows of God distributes, the sorrows God distributes in his anger. 
They are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? So he asked them, I mean, how often, if this is what it's about, if it's I should worship God so he doesn't hurt me, I should worship God so he'll bless me, he asked, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? There's plenty of evil people in the world that seem like they're getting away with things without consequence. So again, that motivator is not a strong enough motivator. And he kind of anticipates their rebuttal. He says, well, what you're going to say is, God's storing iniquity. He's laying up his wrath for their children. And eventually it's going to catch up to them. But Job says, yeah, well, why doesn't God just punish them? Why doesn't God make himself known? Why doesn't God do something about it to them? Because what do they care about what happens after them? If they're so wicked and ungodly, what do they care if they're just saving their wrath? It's a good question. Then he continues with kind of the randomness of everything. Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust, and worms cover them. So he he talks about the randomness of what happens in life. One person goes through life never experiencing anything bad. He dies in full strength. He's wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk. And then he dies. There's another guy who dies in the bitterness of his soul. He's never had pleasure. They both end up dying though. So he's again refuting this argument of I better follow God so bad things don't happen to me. It seems kind of random from our point of view. Then he finishes, we'll finish up the chapter here, asking the question, what about now? What's God going to do now? Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road and do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? See, Job recognizes, yeah, it's going to catch up with them. There is going to be a day of judgment. But what is God doing now? Who condemns his way to his face? And if we need to follow God so bad things don't happen to us, why doesn't God just have bad things happen to people who don't follow Him? If we need to follow God so He'll bless us, why doesn't He just bless us all the time? What's happening right now? See, here's that's the problems with external motivators. We'll never be authentically engaged. Because those motivators aren't... Something is going to happen that causes us to question those motivators. This is why we can't be okay with extrinsic motivators. God is going to bless me. God has a plan for me. God is going to hurt me. God is going to do something bad to me if I don't check the boxes. We can't be okay with that because 
That means we're focusing on what we get from God rather than God Himself. And like I said earlier, no relationship can sustain if all we're focused on is what we can get from that person or what we can avoid from that person. So here's, for example, I said at the beginning, most of what I say has to do with me being like a teacher, husband, or a tool. Here's the tool one. Here's where where I'm dumb. Earlier uh, this week, I was big time convicted by a pretty simple verse. I was reading like the verse of the day, and it said something. It was Psalm 95.2, and it said, Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. And I was praying about that verse, coming to God's presence with thanksgiving. And I was thinking about the offering of thanksgiving that they used to give in the Old Testament. And that it was awesome to me that they weren't trying to get forgiveness from God. They weren't trying to check boxes. The offering of, of thanksgiving was just, God, I'm thankful. I want to offer this to you. But then in the, when I was praying on that and reflecting on that, I was thinking, how often am I coming to God's presence with thanksgiving? How many offerings of thanksgiving am I making? See, and I thought about when I was a new Christian, I did a lot of things out of thanksgiving. I didn't read the Bible all that much, but I was excited to do it. I didn't pray as much as I do now, but I was excited about it. I didn't give as much as I do now, but I was excited to do it. It was with thanksgiving. And I think, well, what do I do now? I want to be authentically engaged, but so much of what I do is ritually engaged. I prayed for X amount of minutes. Check. I read the Bible in the morning, at lunch, at evening. Check. I studied for the sermon. Check. I helped people, even though I complained about it. Check. Checking boxes. Ritually engaged. Kind of just doing it for the extrinsic rewards. I better keep this up, because if I go backwards, God is going to get mad at me. I better do the bare minimum. I better help people, even though I grumble about it. I better study for the sermon, even though I complain. Doing the bare minimum to avoid any consequences. See, and I keep doing the things that I do rather than as an offering of thanksgiving because I've gotten caught up in the things, not in God himself. And then I started thinking even more, man, I do the same thing with kind of everyone, with my family. I check the boxes so they can't be mad at me. I spend this amount of time with everyone, check. I did this thing for everyone, check. They can't be mad at me. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. They have to love me. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. That's the external motivator. That means I don't really love them. I love myself. I'm just trying to avoid anything negative and trying to force people to love me by keeping up these appearances. That doesn't work. That's not love. You know, how can we then be authentically engaged with God, intrinsically motivated, where it's not about the stuff we think we can get from Him or the stuff we can avoid from Him, but God Himself. How do we pursue that relationship where the pleasure is in the act itself, not in the reward? So we'll finish with this idea about it being intrinsically motivated with God. Pursuing God for who He is, not for who I want Him to be. And I want to be careful here about giving a step-by-step thing. Here's five steps to being intrinsically motivated with God. Because then what we do is check, 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 check. Intrinsically motivated, but it's not about that. But we'll lay out the principles here. What we need to understand in order to help grow in this area. And our starting point, 
if we want intrinsic motivation, a, a type of motivation that will sustain itself so that we can be authentically engaged with God, we've got to start from the right starting point. And that's from Psalm 14, where it says, No one seeks after God. There's our starting point. It says in Psalm 14, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God, period. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. And that's also repeated in the New Testament, the book of Romans. Here's our starting point. There is no one who seeks God. But don't a lot of people seek God? I mean, the Bible says no one seeks God. But aren't there a lot of people who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to connect with God? No. It says no one seeks God. What we seek is things from God, not God Himself. As sinners, because we've destroyed our relationship with God because of our acts of sin and wrongdoing, because from the very essence of who we are, we are rebellious against God. That is our level of engagement without God's own intervention. We are rebellious towards Him. No one seeks God Himself on our own. We seek things from God. See, that's why it's very possible to go to church all the time Because I want God to bless me. I want to do the bare minimum so I don't get any negative consequences. But the Bible says no one seeks God. There is no one who does good. No, not one. This tells us we have no intrinsic motivator to please God. On our own, we have no desire to seek God for who He is. Our only motivation is to get stuff from Him in a selfish way. So that's the the starting point here. We've got to understand that. And then... Building from there. The second part of to get intrinsically motivated is that God will write His law on our hearts. It says in Jeremiah 31, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what that says is we have no intrinsic desire to please God, to rejoice in Him for who He is, period. But what God is willing to do is write His law in our hearts. We ruin the relationship with Him, but He is going to restore it. He's going to write that on our hearts. See, and here's the important part. So that's what God says He's going to do. And He does that through Jesus. See, this is what makes the, the transformation. What was Jesus motivation towards us what was jesus motivation to be authentically engaged towards us jesus did not pursue us to get stuff from us he's not like oh man i need more people to worship me i'm kind of unhappy with myself i better get more people on my side that he wasn't seeking things from us he was seeking us for who we are i mean it tells us in the bible what jesus motivation is for the joy set before him he endured the cross intrinsic see that that's huge god is intrinsically motivated to restore our relationship with him now what kind of engagement does jesus have with you is jesus rebellious towards us no we'd all be dead if jesus was against us he was actively working against us We'd be dead. We won't be here right now. So we know Jesus is not engaged in us in a rebellious way. Is Jesus retreatist? Is he is his presence just there, but he doesn't do anything one way or the other? 
No, that's the spiritual God. This idea that God is kind of like a force out there and we better connect with that force and be out one with it because God is kind of in everything and, and he's, it's just kind of like a, a mystical power out there. That's a retreatist God. That's a God who's just kind of there but doesn't really care one way or the other what happens to you. That's not the true God. That's not the God we worship. Is Jesus passively compliant? Does he do the bare minimum for you? No, that's the works-based God. That's the God that all other religions worship. I better do some good things, and then that might force that God to bless me. That God is doing the bare minimum. As long as you're pleasing to that God, then he'll be all, all, all right with you. That is not the God we worship. Is Jesus ritualistically engaged with us? No. He didn't say, you know, I guess I'll forgive these idiots. I guess I'll just die for them. You know, that's what my father wanted. I guess I'll just do it. I'll check the box. No, it was the father's plan to send his son into his own creation, to be fully man and fully God and live without sin. And Jesus, even when he was troubled about that, even when he knew he was going to bear the wrath of our sins, he, he said, should I ask to depart from this hour? It was for this hour that I came. See, if Jesus was ritualistically engaged with us, he would just be checking boxes. Yeah, I better die because that's what I'm supposed to do. I better forgive their sins because that's what I'm supposed to do. What Jesus is towards us is authentically engaged. His motivator was to have a relationship with us for who we are. That's why while we were sinners, he died for us. That's why he doesn't make us get our act together before he forgives us. That's why he came to the earth and lived a perfect life and died for us and rose for us. And that's why he's in heaven now interceding for us because he wants a relationship with us for who we are. Not to say, you know, here's the pretty good people, I guess I'll forgive them. While we were sinners, he died for us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So Jesus' motivator to be in relationship with us was intrinsic. He wanted it because he loves us. He had every right to just throw us away and say, forget it, you guys ruined it. But Jesus is authentically engaged with us, which leads us to the last part of this intrinsic engagement. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He, we were not, did nothing to pursue the relationship with God. We did not seek God. God said he will write the law in our hearts. So he sends his son to live perfectly on our behalf and give us his righteousness. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit. See, if we have no intrinsic motivator to please God, we need him to give us that. And that's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read from John 16 real quick. It says, but now I go away to him who sent me. This is Jesus talking. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. So God gives us intrinsic motivation to follow Him, where we can delight in Him for who He is, not for who we want Him to be, not for avoiding bad things for Him, not for getting good things. See, we have, again, no desire to have a relationship with God on our own, so He establishes that relationship with us through Jesus and gives us His Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. And that's what He is doing today. That's what He does in every believer. And even though there are plenty of times I'm ritualistically engaged or I'm passively compliant, God has given us as Christians the ability to be authentically engaged with Him because He's given us Himself living in us, that we are the temple of God and we are His children. And therefore, we can do things just for the sake of the relationship with Him because we love Him. He's poured His love into our hearts. It says that in Titus 3, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. How am I not just checking boxes with my wife? When I love her with thanksgiving. When I love her for who she is, not for who I want her to be. When I love her not just so that I avoid negative consequences. When are we not just checking boxes with God? It's for the same things. When I love Him with thanksgiving. When I love Him for who He is, not who I want Him to be when I love Him, not just to avoid negative things or get good things. God has given us intrinsic motivation to be authentically engaged with Him so we can love Him. So we'll end with you know, the question, where are you in these, the level of engagement with God? Are you rebellious? Are you at the rebellious level of engagement? Are you actively against everything God is trying to do? And I don't care if you label yourself as a Christian. There's plenty of people in churches who are still rebellious against God, trying to earn their favor with God. If you're at the rebellious level of engagement, you will be judged. I mean, that's coming. But you'll not love God if you just have extrinsic motivators. So I'm not going to be up here and say, Repent. Turn to God and He'll bless you. God has a plan for your life. He's not going to, you know, He's not going to, nothing bad will happen to you if you turn to God. I'm not going to say that. Because those extrinsic motivators are not going to be enough. Those are selfish motivators. What I am going to say is the God of the universe loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And to have that, you turn from your sin and turn to Him and recognize Him as Lord and Savior. So are you rebellious? Are you retreatist? Are you just here? Not going to get involved. Not going to be engaged. Not going to do anything to help anyone. I'm here so that my wife doesn't yell at me. That's not going to cut it. Are you passively compliant? Doing the bare minimum so that God isn't going to smite me with a curse. I'm going to 
go to church once in a while. I'm going to read the verse of the day. I'm going to pray for like 15 seconds, bare minimum, but not do anything, not do anything else. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to work. You're going to give up. Are you ritualistically engaged? I'm going to work hard, but to get the rewards. I'm going to work hard, not because I love God, but because I don't want him to do anything to me and I want to get good things from him. I mean, that's a lot better, but that's not going to sustain us because when we're in the thick of it and we're not seeing the rewards and we're seeing only negative consequences, that is not going to sustain us. Are you authentically engaged? You are intrinsically motivated to pursue God, to follow after Him no matter the cost. You've laid down your life, picked up your cross, and followed Jesus because He's given us His Spirit to do that. See, Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. So let's love God, be authentically engaged with Him, and pursue Him for who He is because we love Him and approach Him with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Oh, Father, first, uh, let's confess to you, God, that there's been plenty of times where we have not been authentically engaged with you. There's been plenty of times where we've just checked boxes with you, that we've done the bare minimum just to get by. But God, help us. We can only be intrinsically motivated if that comes from you. So help us now, God. Fill us with your love and your spirit. Help us to approach you with thanksgiving in everything that we do. Whether we're seeing good consequences or bad ones, God, help us to pursue you. And we thank you, God, that you were intrinsically motivated to save us. That while we we were sinners, you died for us. That you had grace on us, even though we did nothing to deserve it, even though it's us who ruined the relationship. God, I pray if there's anyone who's listening, who's rebellious towards you, who's retreated from you, God, that you would help them now. You would write your law on their hearts. Show them Jesus' love for them. And help them to turn from sin and turn towards you, God. And help us stir one another up to love and good works. Help us to do things just for the the sake of you, God. Not trying to manipulate you, but help us to love you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.